The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. better get healthy and help animals welcome to main street vegan with your host victoria moran how to tweet something viral listen to this so y'all will stop using straws to save fish but won't stop eating fish to save fish That was tweeted this week by a young woman who tweets as Miles Kane, K-A-A-N-E. And I thought it was terribly insightful. So uh, thanks for that. And for anybody who is praying for a viral tweet, um, there's an example. Maybe you can use something like that. Hey there, I'm Victoria Moran, and I am the host of the Main Street Vegan program here on Unity Online Radio, and I do want to give to give a shout out to our hosting organization because there are so many wonderful, wonderful shows, particularly if you're of a spiritual bent, if you're one of those seeking people, you want to learn more about meditation and dreams and visualization and all that good stuff, just check out unityonlineradio.org. You will be really happy that you did. Something else very cool happened this week in connection with this show, and that is that we now have a Facebook group that is just for listeners of the Main Street Vegan program. So if you want to get in on that, you can just go over there to Facebook and check out uh, groups, Main Street Vegan podcast listeners, and we'll have fun. That means we'll be able to chat in between shows and just get a lot of um, a lot of things settled don't you think well what we're going to settle after the break is vistopia if you're vegan you may have it or you may not know you have it but you may recognize some of the feelings we're going to be speaking with australian psychotherapist claire mann author of Vistopia, The Anguish of Being Vegan in a Non-Vegan World. But in this front half of the program, oh my gosh, we're going to be getting in on the fun, fun, fun of being vegan or moving in a vegan word direction with Sam Turnbull, 
You know her from her wonderful and delicious blog, It Doesn't Taste Like Chicken. And she has a fairly new book. It's not exactly brand new because it's already been into third printings. It's really popular. And once you see it, you'll know why. It's called Fuss Free Vegan. 101 Everyday Comfort Food Favorites Veganized. I am loving this book. My favorite chapter is the one at the end about staples, where she tells you how really easily you can make all the things that we think we need to buy. So uh, Sam is right here, right now, from the great country of Canada. Welcome to the Main Street Vegan Program. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Well, it's wonderful to have you because your book is absolutely delightful. And the truth is, do I need another vegan cookbook? No, (laughs) not even kind of, sort of. But I have been using this one. I think the fact that you are letting regular people in on secrets, things like your addictive coconut bacon bits, you know, I see those at festivals. And people put a few of them in the bag, and I've paid a lot for them. And I think, oh, this must be really complex. And you're showing us, no, it has three three instructions. So um, thank you for letting us in on all of that. I'm so so happy you like it so much. That's fantastic. I do indeed, because I am all about easy. So Sam, when you first went vegan, you didn't want to be vegan. How did that happen? No. Well, you see, I grew up in a family of foodies and chefs and hunters and butchers. And like there was like literally animal heads on the walls. So I'm someone who thought I never in a million years would go vegan. Vegans were extreme. They were crazy. They were all dying of protein deficiency for sure. (laughs) So uh, what happened is one day I watched a documentary called Vegucated. Have you seen that one? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm good friends with Marissa. Oh, amazing. Yeah, well, so that was like hugely mind opening for me and it busted all of the myths that I had believed. And so I knew I had to go vegan. And so the next day I woke up and I cleaned out my cupboards and got rid of all the animal products and started my vegan life. But the problem was, is that I didn't really want to be vegan. I knew I should be, but I wasn't excited about the food. I had like come across a lot of like grain bowls and stuff like that. And so I kind of had to figure out how to learn to love to be vegan. And how'd you do it? So a big thing for me, of course, was food. Um, And so I started uh, cooking all the recipes that I found, got some cookbooks, followed some blogs, and I bought, you know, what at the time was kind of the basic ingredients for vegan food. So all sorts of things like uh, guar, guar gum and spelt (laughs) and hemp. And I made grain bowls and energy balls and uh, protein smoothies and all of this stuff and like the food was fine but I just felt like I was hugely hugely lacking in um, all of my kind of favorite foods that I grew up eating and I really did feel like I was missing out on foods so instead of using those recipes and and going to the health food store and buying all those weird and expensive and hard to find ingredients I just gave up on all of that I pushed it all aside I just hit my local grocery store and I basically just started veganizing my old favorite recipes and what I soon discovered is that with limitation came inspiration and before I knew it 
I realized that any recipe could be made vegan and taste just as good, if not better, than the original. And I was like loving, loving, loving my recipes. They were delicious. They were easy to make. They didn't have to be complicated. You didn't have to spend hours in the kitchen. And they were just as satisfying as they were without the meat. It was great. So how do you talk to your family? I mean, I don't know if any of them have come over to your way of eating and seeing the world. How do you talk with those who haven't? Yeah, um, so, so everyone definitely eats more plant-based than they used to, for sure. Um, you know, people, I, my family is really big on logic and science, so I can send them a lot of documents like that. Um, but yeah, so I, I mainly just relate to them more through the food. Um, all of the Christmases and everything I bring really lovely like homemade vegan cheeses and platters and, and everyone in my family is open to trying new food. So it's really just wooing them with deliciousness. And once they realized that the food wasn't bland and gross, like they had originally thought and like I had originally thought, then, you know, they start opening their mind. <laughs> wow. Well, talking about sweets, woo them with deliciousness. That would be a really good one. So <laughs> were you a great cook before or did, I, did your culinary education begin with veganism? Yeah, I mean, I've always loved to cook for sure. Um, food was so big in my house that like we grew up and the first thing we do in the morning around breakfast was basically start planning the meal for the night. And we'd be like, okay, well, for appetizer, we're going to do this. For main, we're going to do this. So like, I don't have any formal training in cooking, but I've always loved cooking. And I actually think that that has been a help to me not having formal cooking because my recipes are very relatable. They're just from a home cook's perspective. Yeah, they are very relatable, not to mention yummy. And, <laughs> you know, I know you're much, much younger than me, but a lot of the foods, the, the dishes that you have in here remind me of the things that I ate growing up. And everybody wants what we had growing up. Right. Yeah. I think a lot of people think you have to give up a lot when you go vegan. But the truth is, is that we eat like a handful of types of animal and we there are over like 80,000 edible plant species in the world. I really think you only gain. You get to gain all the things that you haven't tried, but also you get to eat all your favorite foods still, just vegan versions. Right. And you, your cookbook and your recipes come down in a very interesting place, I think, because there seems within the plant-based vegan movement today, a kind of riff. It's either you're super healthy and you're whole food plant-based and you don't have sugar or oil or salt or anything, or you are a junk food vegan and you completely live on donuts and ice cream and frozen pizzas. But what your book says, as if I'm reading it right, is you can get all that pleasure and all that comfort and all that familiarity in foods that you make yourself that are of a lot higher quality than most of the stuff you're going to buy commercially. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I don't live a whole food plant-based lifestyle. I do use oil in my cooking, but that said, like most of my recipes are very low or have no oil in them because I just use what I think is delicious and what is required to get those flavors. But my mm. chocolate cake, yeah, it's a chocolate cake. It has sugar and it has oil in it. But when it comes to the savory dishes, they're definitely on the healthier side because um, you can get all those amazing flavors and textures without oil and all that excess stuff. It's mainly about spices and about how you treat it. Yeah, that's so good. So you have a really successful blog. It doesn't taste like chicken. So when did you start? <laughs> how did you start? And is anybody out there listening who's thinking about a vegan food blog, are they too late? 
Uh, they are not too late. Sorry, I thought you were asking the general population. I was waiting for someone to ask a question. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was asking um, you to advise them. Okay, okay. I get it now. Um, yeah, no, I started my blog basically in a way to woo my family and friends. Because once I started discovering how much I was loving my food, I wanted to show people that it was amazing. And show people like myself, because I hadn't known that it was amazing. Um, and, and my friends and family. So I started posting my recipes online and that's how my blog was born. And with the title too, I wanted to even just keep it a much more lighthearted and fun blog. I found a lot of the blogs out there, like you said, were either like very health focused. And at the time there was a lot of like kind of angry kind of approaches. And I just wanted to have like fun cooking in the kitchen. So yeah, I started that and um, it worked in the sense that my fan friends and family were loving my recipes, but then a funny thing happened and that's that people all over the world started trying my recipes and leaving comments and loving my recipes. And I always say I'm like a dog. If you pat me on the head and tell me I'm good, I'll love you forever. So this was just like feeding my fire. I loved it so much. So um, yeah, I basically decided to take my blog into a full-time career. And after about two and a half years, I left my job as an art director and took my blog full-time. And I've been doing it ever since. And it's almost six years now and definitely my passion. Wow. And uh, I was just yeah. going to say, for the people who want to start a blog, I don't think it's ever too late because there's always going to be a, your own unique perspective and other people are going to relate to that. I'm sure somebody listening is thinking, yeah, she was an art director. <laughs> so for those of us who don't have those kinds of graphic and photographic skills, what would you advise a new blogger? Yeah, well, I mean, I think you just have to really be yourself, right? And so I do come from an art background. I have two degrees in fine art. And so that is something that makes my brand a little bit more different because I use a lot of hand writing in my cookbook and on my blog as well and I take all the photos myself um, but I've seen other bloggers out there that aren't particularly good at photography and don't have a lot of th those kinds of unique approaches visually but they have maybe a really great writing voice and they can really relate to their audience or perhaps their recipes are so unique and original that you can't get anything like that anywhere else what you really just have to do is be yourself and that is your brand and rock the assets that you have. And don't worry about the things that aren't perfect because we can't do everything. <laughs> oh, I love your attitude. It's, it just <laughs> makes it seem like everything is possible for everybody who really cares enough. So speaking of something that is popular, this, this book, I think, has surprised even the publisher. Maybe it surprised <laughs> you. So, wow. What do you think sets it apart? Thank you. Um, yeah, I think it did surprise everyone. Already in its third printing, so that's pretty fun. Um, I think, like you said, that, that it's not focused on whole foods, like necessarily health foods, and it's not the extreme junk. But really, like I just wanted to make veganism easy and approachable for everyone and not scary. And so I don't use expensive and hard to find ingredients that you have to go to the health food store and hunt down and look for. I think like the most complicated ingredient I use is white miso paste, which I can find in my local grocery store, and I think most people can. But I use really basic, normal ingredients to make food that you kind of already recognize. Pastas, pizzas, 
cakes, cookies, pies, burritos, tacos, salads, soups, pancakes, waffles. It's all very familiar and approachable using approachable ingredients. And the recipes work. Yeah. <laughs> I did a yeah. lot of testing to make sure that they work for people so you're not disappointed. That's the last thing I want to happen. <laughs> yeah, I can tell. When, when you read as many cookbooks as I do, you know which ones have really been tested and which ones haven't. And, and yours totally passes muster on that. It's very clear. Fuss-free vegan, Sam Turnbull, really, if you want food like you grew up on and you don't want to spend all day in the kitchen, this is the book for you. So Sam, tell us about some specific techniques. You have um, the art of the perfect vegan grilled cheese sandwich. Can you kind of walk us through that? Yeah, so that's made using my own homemade vegan cheese, which I have a recipe for. And I know it sounds intimidating to make your own vegan cheese, but I think this recipe takes 10 minutes from start to finish. And most of it is spent boiling cashews. <laughs> really, you just throw everything in the blender and cook it up. And it, the secret ingredient is tapioca starch, which has this ooey, gooey, stretchy quality, which is really cool. And then you just smack that on some bread. I have some tips there for how to make your grilled cheese like extra, extra, extra awesome. And then all of these ideas of fun things you can layer into your grilled cheese, which is why I call it the art of making grilled cheese, because you can create a masterpiece and have the world's best vegan grilled cheese. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's amazing. And some of your suggestions, the some you expect onions, caramelized onions, tomatoes, but then you've got apple slices, fig slices, pear slices, or strawberries. That would be so amazing in a grilled cheese, but whoever thinks of grilled cheese with fruit? Right? Mm -hmm. It's playing with those kind of salty and sweet combinations, which we're so attracted to. That's why we like things like kettle corn and pop uh, popcorn with, yeah, kettle corn and um, peanut butter, you know, which has that kind of salty sweet. Um, that's a really like popular combination of foods, but people don't think to do it that much when they're eating a sandwich, but it's really great. Yeah. You also have some very interesting things to say about the names of foods and dishes about using the word meat and cheese. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so it's always been a pet peeve, even since when I first went vegan, um, that uh, I go to restaurants and look at different recipes online, and a lot of people say, this is fake chicken, or mock chicken, or un-chicken, or chicken spelled weird or something. <laughs> And I just don't really like that context. Like, I don't eat fake food. I eat real food. And I don't think that there's any problem um, creating familiar tastes and textures, but I like to call it what it is and not what it isn't. So I'll always call something, like, I'd rather call it a crispy fried Satan ball or whatever it is, you know, instead of pretending like it's not, not what it is. I don't know. I find that always a weird context. I don't want to pretend that I'm eating meat. I want to eat something real vegan. <laughs> I get it. And I think it's the satisfaction of the textures. You know, I, I've read um, a book like Meat Hooked, uh, where she talks about the history of meat eating and human civilization and how it got to the lofty position it uh, has long enjoyed. But when I just think about regular people and why meat and, and animal products in general are so enticing, I think it's because they're so solid. And very often when people go vegan, we think we're only supposed to go for the watery kinds of foods, which certainly have a lot to be said for them. 
And yet without that solidity, I think people tend to go back. Right, exactly. Yeah. And that's why you got to have a good book and a good blog to go to to get the right recipes that are the right texture. (laughs) So you have now moved out from not just blog and not just print into video and you're on YouTube. So how's that different? What are you doing over there? Yeah, so this year I made it my New Year's resolution to post a video on Wednesdays every single week just to kind of see what would happen and uh, to see if I can reach a new audience. And also, like, I think the thing is that when people see the word vegan, they automatically assume it's going to be hard to make or time consuming or weird. So I really wanted to put video up, you know, five minute videos, 10 minute videos to show people that it actually is really easy and it actually does look really good and you can actually really make it in your own kitchen. And so when I've been doing that, I think people have reached out who have been following me for a long time, but all of a sudden started actually making my recipes and going, oh, it is easy. And then I'm also finding new people that are approaching me and leaving comments and letting me know that, you know, that their recipes have become staples in their kitchen because of the videos they were able to see that how easy it was and how approachable it was. So help us with that too. You were very good at giving guidance to prospective bloggers. How about prospective YouTubers? What do they need? Oh gosh, I don't think of myself as a a, a professional YouTuber yet. I feel like I'm all new, but yeah, I just use my camera. I don't even have any proper lighting. I think just a decent microphone so you don't sound too terrible. (laughs) And uh, yeah, just start being you in front of the camera. I mean, YouTube's a bit of a scary world because people can be really harsh, but you just got to keep up the positive attitude and remember that you're doing it for the animals. Mm. And what do you find is your ace in the hole for getting the vegan message out into the world? Um, Well, I mean, I think for me, it's just my general personality and vibe. A lot of people see how happy and positive and smiley and giggly I am, and they are inspired by that. And that's just like my own thing. And again, that's just being me, right? That's just branding yourself, really. Um, So I think that has worked in my favor a lot. And when I was writing the blog, as much as I write happy, it doesn't always portray. So now that people can see my face and see how much I really enjoy cooking and really enjoy being vegan, I think that helps people be a little bit more inspired, or at least Ah. that's what I'm hoping. (laughs) So um, you're a young woman out there in the world, and I'm presumed dating and such and so. How's that as a vegan? Is that more difficult than your friends who are just omnivore and eat like everybody else? Uh, I don't think so. My omnivore friends are single too. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I, you know, I have no problem personally dating non-vegans as long as someone is open and nice. To me, veganism is a really, really rational thing. And I think it makes all the sense in the world. So I just feel like if someone were to fall in love with me, they would inevitably turn vegan because they would just love me and want to listen to what I have to say. Um, So I'm not really worried about it, I guess. Um, But as long as they're nice, open people and who wouldn't want to date someone who's nice and open anyways. Yeah. Oh, that's so sweet. Well, that actually happened to me. I I had dated vegans and vegetarians for about, I don't know, 10 years at that point. And it was finally like, no, I I have to be willing to talk to these other people. And of course, we're talking over 20 years ago. So the the vegan pool was much smaller. I started dating my husband largely because he seemed so average. (laughs) not average in that way, but you know, normal (laughs) out in the regular world. 
but he'd never thought about it. So he went vegetarian after two weeks and vegan took a few years. But now I think he's, he's more vegan than I am in terms of being willing to go up to people in public and say, excuse me, do you know there is an animal on your hat? So, um, yeah, it can happen. Well, that's cool. I, I love your attitude. So in this wonderful book, Fuss Free Vegan, do you have an absolutely hands down favorite recipe? Uh, well, I'm definitely a pasta girl. If I'm having a bad day or even a good day, <laughs> I just want to sit down with a giant bowl of pasta. And so my favorite is my tofu bolognese, which if you're looking for that kind of meaty substance that I've literally given this to recipe, this recipe to people on TV, on live television, and they didn't know it was vegan. So it's a good one. Wow. So what is the secret? What makes it so meaty? I haven't made that one. Oh gosh, you definitely have to do it. Um, so what I do is I crumble up the tofu and I mix it with a little bit of spices and then I put it on a baking sheet, spread it out on a baking sheet and bake it low and slow for a while. I think it's in there about 30, 45 minutes, something like that. And that kind of dries it out and makes it these kind of little crunchy bits. But then when you stir it back into the tomato sauce, they suck up all that moisture and they get this amazing chewy texture. And it holds too. Like you can have it the next day and the texture is still there. It's pretty cool. Mm. Well, that is something to look forward to. Okay, while we're on favorites, how about dessert? Oh, so many. Um, my chocolate cake is amazing. Uh, if you don't want to eat a cake that tastes like raw or, you know, really heavy or dense, I think a lot of people think of that when they think of vegan desserts. It's super moist and flavorful and chocolatey and light, but really rich and delicious. But then also, I love a good creme brulee and I have a really easy to make creme brulee. It's way easier to make than traditional creme brulee. So that's pretty fun. Now, that one I read with interest because it only has about three instructions, four or five <laughs> ingredients. But I have to say, you you kind of got me when you talked about the creme brulee torch. That seemed dangerous. Yes. Well, you don't have to do that. That's only if you want the, uh, the burnt sugar on top. But creme brulee torches are very small. They're just basically glorified lighters. So it's nothing too scary, I promise. Okay, well, that sounds really fun because I would totally consider myself uh, baptized into the world of the gourmet if I owned a creme brulee torch. And maybe your book, Fuss Free Vegan, is going to get me there. Anything can happen. <laughs> Sam Turnbull, bless your heart. Thank you so much for this beautiful book and for making real world vegans out there and for everything you are doing online and in person. So may your success continue. Let us know what you're doing next. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute delight and pleasure. Oh, bless your heart. Well, uh, <laughs> hopefully our paths will cross in the three-dimensional world. So the book is Fuss Free Vegan. The blog is It Doesn't Taste Like Chicken. So if you're not yet friends with Sam, do become that. And everybody else, stay with us because after the break, we're going to be talking with Claire Mann and learning about and maybe how to get over the anguish that vegans can have in an omnivorous world. That's called Vistopia. And we are going to learn about it in just about a minute. Take care. Stay with us.
Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. If you've been inspired by the programming on Unity Online Radio, we hope you will give your support so others may be inspired too. This online radio network depends on the support of listeners like you to continue operating and expand its outreach. Go to unityonlineradio.org and click on Donate today. Confucius said that to be wronged is nothing unless you continue to remember it. If we can let our past remain in the past, we are not compelled to endlessly reenact it. If we seek to understand the situations in the other person's life and put forth the effort to walk a mile in his shoes, we may be less quick to take offense at what may be directed toward us. Understand that forgiving does not mean excusing, but dwelling on past slights or offenses can never help us grow. Unforgiveness always diminishes us. An African proverb says, The one who forgives ends the quarrel. You can be a powerful agent for healing. Let go of old hurts. Let the past be the past. Forgive. This message has been brought to you by the Association of Unity Churches International. To find a Unity Church near you, visit www.unity.org. Take time out for you and join other like-minded souls looking to build their connection to spirit with the Unity at Sea Cruise in 2019. Experience a spiritual retreat at sea as you participate in a special program designed to help you on your individual journey of self-discovery. Deepen and explore your spiritual growth with Unity ministers and presenters as you enjoy exotic Caribbean ports of call. For all the details, go to unity.org slash unity at sea now to make a deposit by January 30th and save $100. Did you know you can reach Unity's 24-7 prayer ministry online? You don't even have to give your name to know the prayers have begun for you or those you love. Someone has been praying around the clock at Silent Unity since 1890, and every request is taken into prayer for 30 days. Why not let us pray with you, too? To submit your prayer request to Silent Unity online, go to unity.org and click on prayer, or call 816-969-2000. Would you like to experience more peace and joy in your life through A Course in Miracles? Let Rev. Jennifer Hadley support you in discovering the powerful life lessons available through this unique spiritual thought system that teaches the way to love and peace is through forgiveness. Join Jennifer every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central for A Course in Miracles, living the love, walking the talk, to experience the healing for yourself on Unity Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome back to the program. Uh, If you want to know more about what happens at Main Street Vegan, we've got so much going on. We have an academy. 
that trains vegan coaches. We have a new documentary film about to premiere. It's called A Prayer for Compassion. So do check us out at MainStreetVegan.net. There's also a blog there, many times contributed to by graduates of Main Street Vegan Academy. The one that is up now is by a Swiss animal rights activist, Pascal Herney, and it's about meditation as animal rights activism. Hmm. Some people might say, well, that's not very active. But I think after you read this post, you might see that differently. Let me know what you think. And what a wonderful segue into our next session. Because you know we're out there trying to do what we can do to make the world better. And yet we are whole people with bodies, minds, and spirits. And sometimes it can be a little bit tough to be vegan. Claire Mann is an Australian-based vegan psychologist, communications trainer, and animal rights campaigner. She consults with people all over the world to help address the personal and social challenges of being vegan and living in a non-vegan world, and she is the author of Vistopia, The Anguish of Being Vegan in a Non-Vegan World. Welcome, Claire Mann. Thank you. Wonderful to be on the show all the way from Australia. Oh, it is. And it's so early in the morning there for you. Thank you so much for getting (laughs) early to uh, help us out of our vegan angst. So I have to tell you, when I first received your book, I thought, well, I don't have dystopia. I just kind of deal with it. But I also think I've been vegan 35 years. And if you don't learn how to deal with it, then... (laughs) Maybe you never will. So tell me, am I in dystopia denial or do we kind of learn to deal with it? Oh, that's a new one. I haven't heard that one, uh, dystopia denial. But um, I think dystopia, the anguish, the that sort of anguish we feel knowing about the burden of knowing, really, the systematized cruelty towards animals. When people first find out, I think that's when it's most acute. And I think particularly as people look around and they have to question everything, of course, not just animal issues. If they didn't know that, what else don't they know? But I think after 35 years and hopefully much less than that, um, we can have powerful strategies that transmute that into powerful action for change. I love it. I love it. So tell us the definition, because this is your word. And I sense that this word, it's going to become like Melanie Joy's carnism dystopia. I hear people using that word. So congratulations on the wonder of creating a word in the English language. What is it? How did you come up with the name? Thank you. Well, um, dystopia sort of sounds like utopia and uh, dystopia, doesn't it? And I guess that's where it sort of came from. So I'll give the definition first and I'll, I'll share the journey with you is utopia is that place of joy and freedom and abundance and compassion. And Dystopia is a world of darkness and greed, speciesism, totalitarianism, and sort of thing the existential writers have written about extensively. And I believe that vegans go through a vegan dystopia. They become aware of the systematized cruelty towards animals. And then when they try to tell the non-vegan world, there's this like trance-like collusion with a dark world, a dystopian world, of which they don't even know they're part of, and of course contributing to through their consumer choices. So this is a sort of, it's a three aspect thing. So it's the individual systematized anguish we feel, just knowing at the sheer size of what's going on in behind closed doors to animals. Then this sort of resistance, ridicule, and criticism from others. 
But then the question comes, well, if I didn't know about this, what else don't I know? And of course, when they raise it with other people, they're told they're a conspiracy theorist. And you might have experienced that yourself or had people uh, tell you that. So this is what the word means. And I, why did I create the word? Well, I gave up meat 40 years ago, and but didn't ask more questions. I was a, a teenager and was getting on with life. But I just read about a, a slaughterhouse and I stopped immediately. And it was not till 10 years ago that I became aware of what was going on in factory farming. And as soon as that happened, I became a vegan. I saw my whole family, the dogs too, all became vegan. Then I became an animal rights campaigner and speaking at rallies and festivals and running training programs, working for big animal protection groups. And people started to seek me out. And then a, a sort of pattern emerged. They were typically having symptoms, the people that came to see me, the vegans, refusing to see a non-vegan, saying, well, they'd never understand. They were experiencing depression and grief, anger, misanthropy, hating the human race, a sort of sense of hopelessness. And over 10 years, I've gathered sufficient case study evidence, which also reflected my own journey. And, and then, then I did a large survey, and I thought there is something specific to this particular group of people who know about what is going on, the burden of knowing. So that's briefly the story, but also that I found physicians sending people to me who they sat had eating disorders, social adjustment disorders, or actually self-harming because they were watching the videos. And I thought, unless I come up with something quick, we'll, suddenly, we'll soon have a pharmaceutical to stamp it out of people. Mm. An animal-tested pharmaceutical. Absolutely. <laughs> wow, this is utterly fascinating. So I think about the term compassion fatigue that I know is used for people who generally work with other people in disaster areas and regions of extreme poverty. So if we've already got that, do vegans and animal activists need our own term, our own work? <laughs> oh, that's, that's interesting. I think the, the symptoms, the behaviors, the, the process of compassion fatigue would be very similar in any um, activism, certainly, or people working with trauma situations. Um, maybe someone will come up with a word, I'm not sure. But I think it's, it's another layer, isn't it? It's interesting because it's the ubiquitous nature of this, I guess, because as we know, if someone actually doesn't become vegan after finding out really what goes on, they're either saying it's okay, they don't believe us, or, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy for this to go along. I'll just turn a blind eye to it. And unless they take active steps each day to not partake of that system, they are partaking of it. Even if they don't believe in cruelty, every time, you know, I, I'm telling you this things you know, of course. And so I think it's because there's this overlay that kind of gets ignored. You know, we see people doing, I walked into a hotel the other day and it was like planet project planet or something we're going to you know be more sustainable to help people in the planet and of course i'm sure many people on this call would say well you know you've missed out a whole huge number of um, per persons there in, in not saying animals and so i guess maybe we do need a new word um are you thinking of coming up with one <laughs> oh, no, i think you've done it i mean i i think you've really done it with dystopia i i'm just thinking about um the outside world you know, like what, what's so different about what you do? I mean, I think what's different about what we do is that some people think it's great, even if it's not their choice, but other people 
think that it's lacking. So I think if we were to say, I'm, I'm going off to help where there's been a climate disaster, I, I'm going to do this thing with people who are ill or this thing with people who are deprived in some way or other, everyone would say, oh, that's great, but I'm going to go to another fur march. I think some people are rolling their eyes, if not externally, internally, because people, many of our fellow humans don't value non-human lives, even in the ballpark to the extent that human lives are valued. I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that, that's right. If people will go to a disaster area or there's charities raising money for children. Anybody who does that is applauded. And the resistance is quite extraordinary, isn't it? I think I actually in previous life trained as an existential therapist. So, and for anyone who isn't clear what that is and, and who's listening, um, it's really the philosophy of what it is to exist. And I, I can't think in all the years, the 30 years I've been a psychologist, of something so fundamental that shifts the worldview in such a way um, because you're looking at the outside world, suddenly you wake up one day and it just isn't the same. And everything that you held to be true isn't. But it's the fact that everybody who isn't aware of that is partaking in the system to add to the angst. I think that's what kind of makes it different. And so when we say um, we're going on a firm march, then there's this sort of, well, this, what about people? I think that's an inherent um, speciesism and the fact that most people don't choose. They go along with the shoulds, oughts and musts mm -hmm. and don't really question their lives at all in the way that they really think they could change it. Well, you have really tapped into something. I've been talking with um, a lot of people involved in the clergy because this film that I'm involved with, A Prayer for Compassion, is to introduce vegan living to people of faith. And a lot of, of the clergy people are telling me we have to be so careful because we don't want to make people feel bad or wrong. And I think, well, I get that. And yet there are other things that, that in these various churches, synagogues, ashrams, people are told we don't do this. And yet when it comes to something about animals, it, there's a little bit more anxiety about expressing it than if we're talking about, you know, we of this organization do not believe in discrimination against other humans or, or something of that nature. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? I, I have a bit of a theory as to why this might be, because if you think about well, most people, when they think about veganism, I believe they think it's a fussy vegetarian. And so immediately it brings up connotations of, well, I'm going to have to eat something different or what do you eat? And anyone who's been a vegan for a while, I'm sure you've heard it over the years, the, the pioneering question, where do you get your protein? And But people really often don't know. And I think what happens is most people believe they've got choice and freedom. And yet they're born into a system where all those shoulds, oughts and musts, you know, they should... Um, do a sensible job. They should invest. They should have a roof over their heads. They should get married. They should have children. Um, they should be heterosexual in many areas of the world. Um, they should deny gratification. When they get to a certain age, they need to grow up and be sensible. And if they reach a certain stage, going on a skiing holiday shows you've really made it. I know people that go on skiing holidays, clients that they don't like it, but they feel that's where they should be and that's what they're showing to the world. So they have all these, um, I think for a lot of people, and there's an illusion of freedom. They're choosing within such a little narrow diet of what they really want to do. 
And so they hock themselves up in big mortgages and do jobs they don't like. Nine out of 10 people say they don't enjoy the work they do. And But one, something they get to do three times a day and nobody questions it is what they put in their mouth, unless they've got a, over, you know, a zealous doctor or partner. And so they can actually choose to eat complete junk food. <clears throat> and somebody might think something, but they're not going to say anything. And that's that little moment of freedom. When we come along and actually say, well, that's actually not okay anymore, I think at some unconscious level, it taps into the reality, the awareness, if not even made conscious, that they're not really choosing at all because the reaction is so out of proportion to the threat. If it wasn't a problem to people, they say, well, thanks very much. Not a, you know, that's your choice, not mine. But the vehemence with which some people resist and actually say, you can't tell me what to do. I think that's my little theory. I don't know what you think. I love your little theory. I think it's brilliant. Because I think so much that of what people do is a reaction to the fact that most people feel so powerless. And one of the great side benefits of being vegan is that you can look at your day and say, well, maybe I didn't do anything spectacular today, but I saved animals, I saved trees just because I got up and ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yes. Wonderful. What a fantastic opportunity when you can say that. I guess what we put in our mouths is one of the biggest political actions we can take, really. It mm. seems to be. Now, you've been conducting a survey about dystopia, and I am just utterly fascinated by what you're finding. Give us yes. tidbits. Mm. Well, it's interesting. I started to ask people about, you know, what were their experiences? I gave the definition of dystopia and then put a survey out globally. And, and it, actually, people keep answering it, actually. And it got to over a thousand and I started to see a bit of a pattern. Um, there, I haven't got the, the facts and figures in front of me, but um, a large number were female, um, a lot more younger vegans who were suffering from Vistopia. The Vistopia was particularly acute when they were living with a partner who didn't want to change. Um, one of the most tragic and painful things, of course, was eating around non-vegans. Um, people resisting them, feeling alienated from friends and family. But overwhelmingly, the most what surprised me actually is a large number of people who their partner had no intention of becoming vegan, and they were caught in an extra grip of agony, saying, "Well, I'm living with an otherwise what I believe to be a compassionate and kind person, and they look after our dog and cat, but they just can't extend it to this." So, but in terms of the symptoms, um, I've got a whole chapter actually in the book called "The Symptoms of um, Dystopia," and just. The grief and the anguish is so related to the empathy of the suffering of the animals and that awareness. And I always say that um, vegans have all of life's problems, relationships, self-identity. Do they like their bodies? You know, do they worry about their work? And then we throw dystopia on the top. <laughs> well, that's, that is very insightful. And um, the more you talk, the more I understand so you are a, a psychologist, you're a therapist, you help people get over <laughs> difficulties. Help us. What do you say to vegans who are saying, well, you know, I do get this sometimes. What, what's the antidote? 
Absolutely. Well, I think there's two aspects of this. And, and right at the beginning of your programme, when you were talking about the um, Swiss um, Persuit person who was talking about the meditation, and um, I'll talk about that in a moment, but um, I'm a great advocate of meditation and visioning a vegan world to which we all want to belong. But I think there's two aspects. There is the explicit self-care and self-awareness. We cannot be the change we want to see in the world if we are consumed with grief and rage. And so working through that, working through that grief, learning to be aware, firstly, to identify, label and communicate your feelings is going to be important. You know, like any loss and major life change, there is a process of grief and shock and disbelief that this has gone on. And then that anger and depression. And, you know, some powerful tools we can take somebody through on that to not, we can't cure people of life. These are normal reactions. I remember in an interview I did um, interviewing Dr. Michael Klapper, Klapper, and he said, you know, we want people, when they become aware of this, to feel dystopia. If they don't, we've got a problem. This is a tragic situation. And so that exquisite self-care, which starts to say, well, we need to put credit in the bank every day. And so eating a whole food plant-based diet, having exercise, you know, yoga and meditation are the only things clinically proven to reduce anxiety. And so I advocate people putting, a, putting things in their life regularly so they can start the day with a, a whole sort of grounded base of safety and a sanctuary to which they can return. And often those routines, I say, if you don't like going to the gym, don't go to the gym. I don't go to the gym, but I've done yoga for 40 years. And I may not do hour and a half every day, but I can do 10 minutes for five times a week. And I say, do something where you create habits in your body and your mind. Habit is the memory of the body. And so you're creating a place where you can invest, relate, think about your day. So you're actually learning how to respond and not react. So it's the physical and the emotional health, getting social support around you. Having fun as well. Get rid of your television, all that negativity. Choose the sort of movies and the documentaries you want to watch. And then the other bit of that is become an exquisite communicator. I always say to people, if you can walk away from every conversation knowing that you feel that you just push people in the right direction, you said the right thing, you broke that little trance for a moment, they are near the tipping point of change. When we feel we're angry all the time because we haven't it's putting that self-care into place every day and managing and transmuting that anguish and rage into action, we won't be able to communicate. And then we get so much more resistance because there's almost a contagion effect, actually. Neuroscience is catching up with common sense here and says that, you know, if we're angry and upset, our blood actually flows to the back of the brain we, and people pick it up and they actually become agitated too. So, being the change you want to see in the world really is science is now catching up with. It does actually influence people to a state of readiness to even communicate. But a big part of self-care is meditation. A yoga and meditation I'm a great one for is learning how to identify the, the anguish and the way it actually when it begins in the body. So that when in everyday life you see it begin, you're able to not distract yourself because it does push it down, is to switch it into that other place which your body can remember if you visualize and meditate enough that world we want to belong to that kind compassionate world so two aspects really self-awareness and self-care and 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 learning to be an exquisite communicator mm, that's beautiful now you list in this book and everybody please i know i'm always telling you about books but you know what 
I have a feeling that maybe when we stand at the pearly gates, we'll get credit for having the most books. This one is <laughs> Vistopia, The Anguish of Being Vegan in a Non-Vegan World by Claire Mann. Now, Claire, you say in the book, in the chapter, Living in a World That Doesn't Seem to Care, that there are typical responses that vegans get from non-vegans who don't understand. And some of these, oh, I have so heard <laughs> uh, things <laughs> like, um, well, the vegans are negative and they're no fun and they're poor team players and they're pushy and they want to tell other people how to live and they're judgmental and they're idealistic. And I guess in a way, some of these are <laughs> accurate. And yet, what do we do? We're in a world where most people, good people, people in power and just regular neighbors. Yes. They're Jim. us, except it's okay in their minds to eat animals. And here we are with this deeply held belief. How do we interact without coming across with some of these stereotypes? Yes. I think we have to learn the skills of having of active listening. And a lot of people just really do not know how to actively listen. They, they quietly listen and they attend and then they say their bit. When we actively listen, we ask questions of the other person to get a better idea where they're coming from so that, that we know our audience and we're able to position our responses differently. But also people like to talk about themselves. <laughs> and when they come, you say, we say we're vegan, I always imagine they've got this big sort of balloon behind them with all their attitudes and beliefs and resistances. And if we allow them to speak more, that balloon goes down, that resistance sort of gets smaller and smaller. And so, and even when someone just says, oh, oh, you're a vegan, why are you a vegan? We've always got a tendency to answer the question. And I say, don't do all the heavy lifting. And so always, you don't want to become annoying, but always answer with a question and say, well, there's a lot of ways to answer that. So I can position it absolutely you know, relevant to what you know. And what, what do you know about veganism? And you then, the person is dying to say something because they've, they've already got their attitudes and the resistance and the collective unconscious of the resistance, is then they actually start to tell you. So also, we get them into the practice, the other person, of things coming out of their mouths. Because when people have to defend what they're saying and be accountable for their, for they're not, we're not the only one who brings our values to the dinner table, they hear their, the inconsistency in their own voice if we keep asking them questions. So someone would answer that and they say, isn't it a fussy vegetarian? And say, well, I'm glad you asked me that because um, I used to think that myself. And then once we partner with people, that little subtle, you know, there's time when I thought that too. Um, I think we're all told that it's a, we, we use words like we, we partner with people as opposed to, you know, I'm all um, holier than thou and going to heaven and you're sort of in, in the dark place. We say we come together and we show them that we have all been duped. So I would say something like, Do you know, it was the time I thought that too. And but I learned out that it's the philosophy of the non-use and exploitation of animals. And really just one aspect of that means I don't eat animals. Um, have you ever come across any vegans? And it becomes a dialogue as opposed to us defending. So asking questions is very important. And uh, and when people become angry and upset, often we get this forward tip you and say, don't tell me what to do. You think you're holier than thou. Um, I agree with them sometimes. I say, do you know, there's nothing worse than someone coming along telling you what to do, is there? I don't think any of us like that. So, you know, what, obviously you've got quite a strong reaction here. You've talked to other vegans. What happened there? And so you become this really reasonable person who is partnering to get greater mutual understanding 
and you're gently moving them along there. And I also say to people, listen to what people are asking. If they say to you, where do you get your protein? And we start talking about animal cruelty, they think, well, where did that come from? Answer the questions about the environment, about job security, what will the farmers do if we stopped eating meat? Um, answer that and then um, about, say, health and fitness and then say, and you know, there's another aspect to this. I actually learned that these animals are in appalling conditions. And so it's, you know, it's we're in this together. I'm finding out. Let's all get informed. And I can't believe how much you and I have been lied to. Um, and I think it just softens the, the interaction. The defences can go down more because I think, as um, dear friend of mine, James Aspie says over in Australia, is this is good people doing bad things. And all we're trying to do is give them the opportunity, as we've been given, to extend their bandwidth of compassion. And as all vegans say, I wish I knew well a long time ago what I know now. I would have been a vegan years ago. Oh, that is beautiful. And I love the question. Um, uh, Marty Davy, the dietitian, says that when people say, where do you get your protein? It's wonderful to respond with, well, where do you think I get it? Because yes. obviously, if you're upright, uh, you're getting it somewhere. <laughs> and then it causes them to think and, and you can have a dialogue. So great minds work alike, as they say. <laughs> Thank you so much for the work that you do and for this beautiful, beautiful book. We have a whole 30 seconds. Uh, do you have a closing of thought? Course. Absolutely. Well, thank you. And thank you for the work you do, too. And thank you to everyone out there. We are part of the solution. We're reaching, reaching a tipping point. We've learned to collaborate, be generous with if someone's staying at home cooking for people and they don't want to do street activism. We're all in this together. All of us are needed. And just a little special, really, if people pop along to the Vistopia.com site, if you put Vistopia 15, you'll get 15% off the book. Ooh. Okay, and that's Vistopia, V-Y-S-T-O-P-I-A. And we'll put all of this information on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. We will be with you again in a week. God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Do you ever feel that calling that you should be doing more with your life? If you're unhappy with the status quo, I can help. My name is Elias Patras, and I'm an intuitive motivator, psychic medium, and motivational speaker. I know that feeling, and on my podcast, Your Inner Voice, I can help you answer that call to step into your life's purpose. I will show you how to recognize and listen to the signs and signals that are all around us and help you tap into your intuition. Join me for the show here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts. Let's connect, educate, and grow on this journey together.